Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. A reading from the letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members. Not all the members have the same function. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in the silence of this place, there's still so many voices that drive us and propel us. The voices from outside that tell us to achieve more, strive more, purchase more, look good at all costs, and if we can't look good, at least don't look bad. We have those voices from within that tell us, that inner critic that nags saying, you've failed. Worse yet, you're a failure. If the other people knew the truth about you, they would run. Your best days are behind you. But in the midst of all these voices, voices of apathy, or laziness, or over-entertainment, just 
jumping from one event to the next, one vacation to the next, one fantasy from the next, one addiction to the next, and we're exhausted. We pray that you would give us ears to hear by the power of your Holy Spirit that one true voice that calls us by name and says, you are my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. In the midst of all of our diversity in this room and those joining online, different perspectives and experiences, different ethnicities and places in our spiritual journey, we have so much in common. Each of us is both beautiful and broken, created in your image and likeness and a beautiful mess. And at the same time, you see us and you know us and your response is to give yourself to us in sacrificial, self-giving love. Help us to see that's the truest nature of our existence. And so we pray as you open our eyes to your grace and our minds to your truth, our hearts to your love, our lives to your renewal, we ask that you would activate us, awaken us, and send us out to be your very hands and feet of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. Well, friends, we are in Q3. We're somewhere in Q3. And that means for me, I've started my second iteration of the Whole30 Nutrition Plan. I do it every January in Q1 and then sometime as a reset after the summer. So I'm on day five. And I'm not going to bore you with the details of the Whole30 Nutrition Plan. Suffice to say, it is kind of a uh, nutrition plan where you start removing things, or others would call it an elimination diet. So it's marked by what it's not. It's not eating gluten or grains or sugar or drinking alcohol or legumes or non-glutinous grains like rice. I mean, it goes on and on. The point is this. I'm on day five, which means there's somewhere around day seven for me where my body switches over its fuel source, and it goes from the stuff it used to burn to the stuff that it's about to burn. And I call it rocket fuel phase. Some people are like, Matt, you don't need rocket fuel. Please spare us. And I understand that. But I'm at this funny phase, and I know it by now because I've done this several times, where I start to feel different before I start to look different. Like, I I feel like the shirt's going to fit better. It doesn't fit better yet. I feel like I should walk down the street. Like, does anybody notice anything different? No one notices anything different. I get that. But the point is, there's an internal change before there's an external change. Because I'm burning a different fuel. And we come to Romans chapter 12, and Paul is going to get into now what it looks like for a young, urban, diverse church in the center of the most powerful empire of the world with famines and wars and ethnic and racial inequality all happening in their city. And he's going to talk about what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God in the midst of your own city. But what he's getting at is there's going to be an internal change before there's an external change. You have to learn to burn a new fuel. And we'll come to that. This passage asks us three questions. What's the thing that gives you meaning in life? As Paul would say, what's the thing you're sacrificing for, you're giving yourself for? Because we're all giving ourselves for something. What is the source that's influencing the way you think, act, and live? In other words, what is the transformation agent in your life? Where are you taking in that transformational agency? And third, 
where would you get power to live as you were truly created to live? To not merely live your best life now, but to become a fully alive human being, connected to the God who created you, knows you, loves you, connected to other people in community, in real and right relationship, with a purpose much bigger than yourselves. Where do you get that kind of vision, that kind of fuel? Now, I do want to just point out that we preached on the passage just after this about a year ago. So that's kind of a companion piece if you want to listen to this sermon now and then go back to the podcast or the YouTube archives on um, 8-30-2020. You can go back and hear the other piece to this and they go together. But today I want to focus particularly on that first part. And we're going to start with what influences you. There's this internal transformation. The way Paul puts it, he says, Paul is writing, he's one of the most influential early church leaders, writing to this church in Rome, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, we could have just put that line and preached on that. In fact, there was a very influential British preacher in the last century named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he preached 10 sermons on just that line. There are theologians who get their PhD and do an entire dissertation on just that line. But this is going to be our first point. What do you give yourself for? He says, I encourage you to give yourself as a living sacrifice. Now, of course, for his particular audience, they had Romans and Greeks and Hebrews all together, and in all three cases, they would have a picture of what it looks like to see a living sacrifice take place. All three religious worldviews had some aspect of temple worship and sacrifice, different from one another, but all of them would at least conjure some picture to mind. I want to focus on what the Hebrew Jewish vision would have been in that point. And this is going to get toward what he's not inviting you to do. Here's how it's different. On one hand, the Hebrew temple sacrifice would occur in order to make amends for the community's sin or brokenness or the ways they've wandered or hurt one another. It would be a sacrifice that they would do to atone for their sins. And Paul is not saying, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, that now you need to do something more to make God forgive you. It's not that. So it has to be something else. Here's how else it's different. In the temple, when they'd sacrifice, it would be done. You'd be done by sundown, literally. You would bring the animal. You would cook it. You know, all that. And it would be finished. And he says, I invite you to be a living sacrifice that is continuous, ongoing, every day, even now, intentional, intense. Which, my friends, I would make the case is something much harder As one theologian said, the problem with being a living sacrifice is you always want to crawl off the altar and go back to your own ways. Here's what I think he's inviting us to. To become a living sacrifice means to put to death the right to live life as you choose. To put to death the right to be your own boss. To put to death the idea that you belong to yourself. It's the moment in which you have enough trust with God where you can say, I trust you. I'll put my life in your hands. Even when I don't understand it and don't agree with it, I will still trust you and join myself to you. 
and it feels like death. Because it is. It's a death to your false self that always wants to champion for itself and prove that you're worth something. It's a death to your manipulating self that wants to be loved so badly that you will say and do anything and you become codependent and you're lost. It's a death to your self-destructive self that wants to escape the pain so badly that you will run toward anything and anyone to make it just stop. It is a death, but it's also a new life on the other side. And it's a process. A living sacrifice means that life will be two steps forward and one step back. There are many places throughout the letters that Paul writes to these young, urban, diverse churches in the Roman Empire, and often he begins with blessings to all of the saints. He starts, blessings to all the saints who are in Ephesus, right? That's a different region. And then by chapter 4, he's going, why are you doing the things you're doing? You're so lost, you forgot who you are. In other words, he's saying, to be a saint is not someone who has everything figured out and you've gotten it all right and you sin no more. That person doesn't exist. To be a saint means to be someone who is consistently, constantly, intentionally dying to yourself so that you can join yourself to him. Two steps forward, one step back, but walking with him. And by the way, every time it says the word you in this passage, when we read this in English, we're at a disadvantage because our language does not have second person plural unless you're from the south. Then you have y'all. All of this is y'all. You do this together so that when you get spiritual amnesia and forget how loved you are, we'll remind you. And when I forget, you can remind me. It's y'all. He says, this is your spiritual worship. At the end of verse 1. Gosh, we're still on verse 1. Don't worry, we're not going to go this slowly. This is your spiritual worship. In fact, in Greek, the word that's translated worship is also translated as service. And the word that's translated spiritual is also translated as true or real. So in other words, as you become a living sacrifice and can say to God, I trust you and I join myself to you, this is your true service. As you give yourself and lay yourself out for God, put yourself in service to Christ. That's your true service. And the implication is, you're already sacrificing for something anyway. You know, I hear someone saying right now, maybe you've been a part of Renew Church for a while or someone invited you today and you're saying, yeah, I'm kind of investigating Christianity, curious, I'm thinking through these things. You know you're most welcome here. And you're hearing this and you're saying, die to myself? Give over control of my life? I mean, this is the most ludicrous thing to say to a post-enlightenment, Western, individualistic culture in Southern California. I think I'll take a hard pass. No thanks. But I'd say to you, please don't kid yourself. You're already sacrificing for something. If you say, you know, I'm not sure if I believe in God, but I'm really committed to my career. That's my thing. That's where I put all my energy and my drive. I will tell you now, sooner or later, your career will drive you to the ground. I guarantee you it will never forgive you or give its life for you. It will demand that you give your life for it. Or you say, you know, it's really all about this one person. The love of that person is what I have the greatest desire for. To which I and Paul would say, 
that's beautiful, but beware. Because that person at some point will let you down and you'll be devastated. If that person leaves you, you'll be devastated. If something happens to that person, you'll be devastated. Now someone else says, you know what? I live for myself. I'm independent. I put myself first. I give myself not completely to any person or to any cause. I make my own reality, my own world, and I'm moving forward. Now if that's you, and friends, there are people that live like that. I would say, be wary. You will die alone. You will be a sacrifice on the altar to independence. They will eat you alive. The point is, are you aware of what you're already sacrificing for in your life? And is it noble enough, strong enough, true enough, deep enough to hold you? I think in a moment like this with the Delta variant, with all of our trauma of watching, in some cases, some people who are a part of this church online are actually in Afghanistan. As we see what's happening in Afghanistan, as we see the polarization of a California governor recall going on, as we see what's happening in Haiti, in Louisiana, and the East in the wake of Hurricane Ida, I think all of that pressure starts to reveal where we get our meaning. What tells you that everything's going to be okay? Do you just anesthetize yourself, medicate yourself, just try to minimize it? Do you let it just run you over in a sea of annihilation? How do you maintain hope in the midst of all that? And Paul says, in the midst of all the troubles, in the midst of all the, the struggle out there and in here, there is one that is actually strong enough to hold you through all of it that enables you to go through this world fully paying attention and not losing hope. What influence? Where do you get that hope? Now, that leads us to what influences you. He says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, first of all, there's a bit of humility here. What's the, what's the implication? You don't know on your own cognitive resources what is good and acceptable and perfect. Have you ever made a decision that felt so right in the moment and then everything went haywire and in hindsight you thought, I don't even know what I was thinking? I mean, right now you can laugh at where you were 10 years ago and decisions you made. And in 10 years from now, you will laugh at decisions you are making right now. So a Christian is actually someone who can be the most humble person in the room and say, I don't have everything figured out. But my mind's being renewed. In fact, all of our minds are being renewed. The question is, what's renewing it? And he says, do not let the world dictate what you think and how you think. Winston Churchill, the great statesman of Great Britain in World War II, every January I try to read either a book about him or a book by him. And one of the things that struck me, he was into architecture and building design, among other things. And he had this quote that stuck with me for a decade now about architecture. He said, at first, we design the dwellings in which we live. But after they're built, they shape us. At first, we shape the building. 
But after we live in it for a while, it shapes us. Are you aware of the inputs you're receiving, of the culture that you're immersed in that is actually shaping you all the time? Because it is. It's not neutral. You're being conformed to something in terms of your perspective and your worldview, your set of values. And so he says, instead of being a slave to those currents, instead of being passively, invisibly influenced by those things, be aware of them. So actually to follow Jesus doesn't mean that you check your brain at the door and just go with the flow. It actually means that it wisens you up. It sophisticates your understanding of everything. I have two or three news feeds that I read every day, and I have two other ones that I can't stand that I read just to hear what the other side is listening to, because I want to understand them. It sophisticates you. I sat down to a meal this week with someone who has the exact opposite political views of me, and instead of throwing my food at their face, I said, I completely disagree with you, but I can see how you got there. I respect you. It sophisticates all understanding. But Paul's saying, you may... To be a Christian is to make your own way. Not to, it doesn't mean that you have no constraints on your life. You know, as Americans, we want to define freedom as the lack of all constraints. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me who to be. You can't tell me where to go. You can't tell me how to live. I get to decide all of it. But you know through common sense, what the Bible already teaches is true freedom comes not from no constraints, True freedom comes from the right constraints. So to be a little facetious, if we brought in my son's fish aquarium here right now, and we said that poor fish is so imprisoned in the small globe of that aquarium and in the water, we're going to liberate that fish, and we take him out and we put him on this big table, or we put him in the middle of the street. We did not liberate that fish. We killed it. In the constraints of the globe and the water, the fish can be a fish. You see a musician when our musicians play music and they're so free and so alive, especially when they're improvising. And you say, that must be real freedom. But you didn't see the hours and months and years they put in of chord progressions and developing calluses on their hands and not going out for the party because they were staying in to work on their craft. The right constraints led them to be free in the moment. And Paul says, you need the right constraints the right perspective, the right lens. And what is that perspective? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then he goes on to say, think about what God and God's mercy has done for you. We're not a culture that majors on gratitude. We're a culture that majors on access, convenience, entitlement. He says, what if your first lens was what God and God's mercy has done for you? You begin the day with, I'm beloved. When you mess up and that inner critic creeps in, you say, oh, God already knew about that. I'm already forgiven for that. And now I can walk forward. Later, Paul will say, I don't even condemn myself, let alone let you condemn me, because I only have one judge. A new constraint altogether that leads to freedom. You know what else it leads to? Verse 3. 
a new humility. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Don't think about yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think about yourself with sober judgment. Uh, Sober judgment meaning according to reality, according to the amount of faith that you have. Let's unpack that. What does seeing yourself rightly, not thinking about yourself too highly, have to do with the amount of faith that God has given you? Here's what it means. It means true humility is to have a right-sized view of yourself, not too small and not too big, but just right. True humility is being max, of maximum service to yourself and others. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And how do you do that? According to the faith that God has given you. In other words, as you begin to focus on, to trust, to use as lenses for your life all that God has done for you, how God knows you and loves you, how God will never leave you or forsake you, as that begins to become the lens, how God accepts you, how God loves you. It means on one hand, you never need to have an inferiority complex again. No one can walk on you. No one. No one can define who you are. I love Eleanor Roosevelt's quote, nobody can make you feel inferior without your own consent. And so when that inner critic ramps up, or when those external critics ramp up, you say, the truest thing about me is I'm beloved. I'm known. And then you can actually address the issues without being mortified. I remember this story about Martin Luther, the reformer, you know, from which we get the reformed tradition. And he had a great inner critic that was always on fire. And he had plenty of external critics that wanted to kill him. And when the news lines would say, he's a phony, he's an imposter, he's a traitor, and when his inside would critique him in the same way, there are stories of him going back to his bedroom, sitting on the bed in the darkness, simply burying his head in his hand and repeating back to himself, I have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that is the truest thing about me. He had credentials, but that was his truest credential. Which means that when you begin to believe that you're a failure, that voice can come in and say, no, you're actually beloved and accepted. And conversely, when you're succeeding, when you're hitting home runs, when you're beginning to believe your own headlines and you get a little puffed up head or a big one, you begin to say, though this is great, it is not my essence or my existence because success will rise and fall, but his welcome will never forsake me. And so then you can actually enjoy success without needing to strangle it to get all the life out of it. And when you're experiencing a lack of success, you don't have to be depraved or give up on yourself. There's a new buoyancy altogether. You never have to feel inferior. And you never have to feel superior. And right now in our discourse in politics in our country, I know from almost, I mean, I'll just say almost all of us to kind of hedge the bet, all of us. There is someone, some viewpoint out there that is the problem to you. For liberals, it's the conservatives. For conservatives, it's the liberals. We can go on and on and on. But a Christian is someone who never has to feel superior again. You can say, I differ with you in viewpoint. I think your viewpoint is actually a way toward destruction. I'm just going to be honest with you. But I respect you and love you, so let's have the conversation. Because you're created in the image and likeness of God, and so are they. Because you begin to say, I think they're foolish. 
how foolish have I been in my life? And how has God welcomed me? What if every blog and social media page had a little disclaimer at the top, I promise to disagree with others with respect and love? What a different discourse. That could be actually the mantra for your life. You never need to feel inferior. You never need to feel superior. Now, how do you access that? Because so far, this could be a talk that, you know, Tony Robbins or some other, you know, motivational speaker could give. If you try to do this without the gospel, you'll be exhausted by lunch. I usually say by sunset, but this one, by lunch. Because we're talking about what motivates you and the direction you're going in life. And Paul would say, don't try this without the gospel. And he makes sure to say it twice. It's kind of encoded, so I'll point it out to you. First says, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore... Brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your lives as a living sacrifice. Therefore, as we say in any of the letters to the early church, whenever you see a therefore, you've got to ask, what's it there for? Chapter 12 comes after the culmination of chapters 1 through 11, in which Paul has given this breathtaking treatise on the love of God in Christ. Saying things like, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul getting really personal and vulnerable in chapters 7 and 8 saying, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do are the things I keep on doing. Who's going to rescue me, wretched man that I am? But thanks be to God because in Christ there's no condemnation and he's setting me free. In other words, where do you get the power for this? You get the power from looking at what Jesus has done for you in particular and for us as a world. In your brokenness, he sees you, he loves you, he forgives you. A new source of meaning altogether. You don't have to prove yourself. A new source of humility. I just met someone the other day, spent two hours with that person. And then after we met, I decided to Google them and found out that they've actually been in the Olympics. They never mentioned it once. And the first thing I thought was, that is a humble person. They don't need to, I would start every conversation with, did you know I was in the Olympic time? I'm just trying to give you your coffee, sir. Like, yes, I would bring it up with everyone. This person had no need, a new humility. Therefore, in mind of what God has done for you, in view, that's the second piece, in view of God's mercy toward you, Those who have been loved well, love well. The problem is most of us haven't been loved well in our regular life. Even the best parents in the world are failures in some way or another, let alone the broken families that we come from. Even the best friends in the world at some point are going to say something that really hurts. We have all been hurt in one way or another, let alone the greater endemic systemic evil that some of us endure more than others because of the way we look, the color of our skin the country from which we come. Love people, love well. We haven't been loved well. And do you see how the love of God interrupts that entire cycle? Injecting actually a pure love where you are known and seen and welcomed and it changes everything. If you have, uh, all of you have access to the printout of the scripture today, the rest of that talks about breaking the cycle of revenge. When you have this kind of engine, you don't need to get revenge because revenge, whether it's family feuds or wars going on in the Middle East, one act of violence to another and then they retaliate to them for another, 
it will never end. It only escalates because each act of violence is always justified by the previous abuse. But what do you get in the gospel? Jesus on the cross, being abused, not saying it's all right, it doesn't matter, this doesn't hurt that bad, it will be all all better by and by. He doesn't minimize it, he doesn't explain it, he doesn't scapegoat it. The victim of an unjust political system giving him a false trial that's leading to the death penalty right now for him. The victim of a religious establishment that's lost its way and is ready to scapegoat him to see that it can move forward. And what does he say in the midst of all the violence, all the exclusion, all the abuse? He says, not you're about to see who you just messed with and you're going to regret it. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Taking all all the pain and the anger and the violence and the abuse and recycling it into forgiveness. That's the gift he gives to you and me. And when you have that as the engine, you can begin to have new meaning in your life. It changes not only the world, but it changes yourself. And so, friends, that's the invitation to ask the big questions. What are you giving yourself for? Is it noble enough? What's influencing you and transforming you? What would it look like to have your mind transformed according to this mantra? In view of the mercies of God, in view of all God has done for you, in view of a God who knows you and loves you and calls you to himself, and that becomes the truest tone of your life, leading out into all of your other actions and decisions. And then this gospel becomes the seed that is planted in the middle of the city that turns into a great tree that gives shade to all who come for shelter, that gives food and nourishment and delight. This is the calling for Renew Church. This is the calling for the body of Christ. Let's walk together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray now that you would give us ears to hear what you're calling us into. That our love would be genuine that we would see the way you care for us and then care for others in the same way. Please now speak your truth to each of us and send us out to be your agents of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.